Hey Pacer fans, I'm Miles Turner, and here's the Sideline Guys podcast. Hi Pacers fans, welcome in to a Sideline Guys Wednesday with Jeremiah Johnson. I'm Pat Boylan. Well, for the first time, JJ, since uh, I don't know, I'd have to go back and look at the calendar sometime early mid-March. We have a podcast with actual live games that count to talk about. It feels so good. I know it's felt so good for you to get back in the broadcast chair. Uh, even though there's not thousands of fans behind you like there normally are, it's felt great on our end, uh, on my end, both with Fever and, and Pacers Radio and joining you post-game uh, to get going back on my end as well. We miss everybody in the building. We miss our normal setup. But boy, after the last four, four and a half months, doesn't this feel good? Yeah, I think we maybe did our last podcast right after a game, and it was actually maybe before that Celtics game. I don't think we did one that Wednesday, March the uh, 11th. But, uh, wow, it's been a long time coming. It's been quite a journey to get to this point. And I think later in the podcast, we'll maybe give some shout-outs to a lot of people for helping make this happen. Because even as we talk to players in April and May, we kind of always ask the question about, hey, what, what do you think it will be like if you play in a bubble? Or what might it be like to play without fans? But there had to be some little bit of doubt even in asking those questions if it was kind of just a pipe dream and, and whether the season would just end. And, you know, there would have been just no finality to the season. And whatever would have happened, given the circumstances, you would have to understand. But I don't know how anything could be going much better, not just for the league, but from a Pacers perspective. And much like we have done on Pacers like pregame and postgame, at least five of the six shows, I don't think we knew before the Sixers game that T.J. Warren would be our big topic of conversation. But mm-hmm. five of the six, every postgame show, and then the last two pregame shows, we've led with T.J. Warren, and I think we have to do that here on the podcast as well. Yeah, I was going to say, if we go much longer without talking about T.J. Warren, that would be the newspaper terminology for burying the lead (laughs) (laughs) what a start it's been for him Uh, you know there are so many things that stick out about his performance and and what he's been able to do for the Pacers especially when you consider really how shorthanded Indiana is in their third game against Orlando which was Tuesday night the Pacers had Brogdon and Oladipo in the backcourt for the first time that was the healthiest that they've been and they're still missing two starters Jeremy Lamb and uh, Sabonis. Now you could, you know, make the case that Lamb is a, a sixth man with uh, everybody healthy, but still, you're missing two of your top six players at minimum. You've missed three of your top six players in those first two games, and yet TJ Warren has more than shouldered the load. And there are so many aspects of his performance that jump out to me. But really, the one stat is was doing research and trying to figure out a way to just convey the level of dominance that he has had in the bubble and in this restart so far, if you look at his five biggest individual quarters of the season, the most points that he has had in any of the four quarters at any point in the season, remind you, we're now 68 games in. So you're talking, uh, what, 122.40? You're talking uh, 272 quarters, if that math off the top of my head is correct. In those 272 quarters, four of his five best quarters have come in the bubble and his three best quarters have come in the bubble. He has quarters of 19, 19, 17, and 16, four (laughs) quarters like that in 12 games. It's remarkable. And I'll follow that up with something on his abs because of the game against Orlando, he had 21 points and in five halves, that was his fourth highest scoring half of the bowl. (laughs) 
just like, and you can do, we could probably go all day on this. We could dig up some stats. I saw one that was kind of circulating and sometimes, you know, it's interesting. You can put something out there and I think you do a pretty good job of finding some stats that tend to trend. Sometimes I'll just uh, type pacers in Twitter and see what the top tweets are. And every once in a while it's a Pat Boylan stat tweet. But, but if a national writer puts a stat out there about the Pacers and it goes, then, then it jumps to the top. And I think, uh, it, one yesterday just rattled off, man, maybe it was Caitlin Cooper and actually got retweeted a lot, but it rattled off his shooting percentages. And you normally think of 50, 40, 90, and he's like 60, 60, 90 with one turnover. I mean, it, yeah. everything he's doing. And then the other one that in the research prior to yesterday's game that I was digging around NBA.com that I tweeted out was, and I don't know what it is now, but I know he's not averaging 10, was of the top eight scorers in the bubble games, he was the only one to not average 10 free throw attempts. And it wasn't even close. He's not even at five. And, I, and he didn't even get to five, I don't believe, on uh, in the Orlando game. And so that there are just so many things that he's doing that it's, it's basically he is doing and no one else is doing. And I get it that, you know, Anthony Davis deserves a lot of credit for how he's playing. And, and you could probably, you know, pick out four or five other bubble MVPs. But I think everyone's playing for second at least one weekend. And if they had a bubble player of the week i don't know what the the time frame would be would it go from the original thursday to you know is it a nine-day period regardless just just give tj the plaque it's been phenomenal to watch and i guess the one other thing i want to add before i'll get back to you is in watching the scrimmage games especially the last couple when they went to that small lineup when i was on the first quarter of that last game with chris and quinn you know we had the opportunity to talk a little more than than i normally do during a game and one thing that i noticed right then that I didn't get out, but I was really planning to discuss, and I did discuss with Kristen Airy in the days leading up to the first seeding game, was that with that smaller lineup and Aaron Holiday on the court as well with Victor Oladipo and Malcolm Brogdon, I was a little worried that T.J. Warren wasn't maybe going to get as many shots. And I felt like they were almost kind of leaving him out a little bit. What happened in that first game, not to say you want Malcolm Brogdon to miss any games, but just in that one instance – when he was a little bit of a late scratch and you analyzed what the Pacers had available from a scoring department against a team like Philadelphia that you know can score, you just you had to look at that starting lineup and the entire situation playing a game without Sabonis, the first of many. You had to have T.J. Warren step up. You just knew. And, and the other one was I thought Miles Turner would have a good first week, but he's always struggled against Philadelphia. Fouls were a problem nine seconds in. And so when he's taken out of the equation, he has scoring capabilities. You almost just absolutely had to have T.J. responded. And then when he gets 53 and he's so locked in, you know there's going to be a carryover, and we've seen that in games two and three. No, I think all of that's uh, absolutely spot on. And, you know, I, I think you could perhaps make the case that the Pacers win games two and three, maybe, if, if T.J. Warren doesn't have that type of performance, of, if he isn't in there, maybe you could make the argument. But if you look at what game one was, it was, first of all, against Philadelphia. And it's possible, you know, we might know this answer in a, a few days. It's possible that you might look back at the season and say, OK, in terms of where the Pacers get seated for the playoffs, that was the most important game of the season. Not only did you move a game ahead of Philadelphia, but you clinched the tie break. And if the Pacers, you know, get that lead to two or three, especially when they get into these Miami games, if that looks more certain than it does now, that that's going to be the 4-5 matchup, 
you might go in back and say that Philadelphia game was the most important game of the season. And you started to touch on it there, and I wanted to continue to take that thought further. You didn't have Miles Turner for basically uh, the game. Now, he had, a, he had a nice fourth quarter. He had a couple shots in the fourth quarter. But uh, for at least three quarters, you didn't have Miles Turner. You already don't have DeMontis Sabonis. So you had Jakar Sampson and, at times, T.J. Leaf, who was viewed as a spread four, playing the five and guarding the most physical five um, the game has probably seen since Shaq. You were that shorthanded. Um, not to mention, no Malcolm Brogdon. Um, Victor Oladipo, not 100%. You were out-rebounded by 20. Joel Embiid had 41 points and 21 assists. I mean, if I'm dialing all of this up for you beforehand, like if I'm saying, hey, you know, I'm clairvoyant, I can see into the future, and you're not going to have Turner and you're not going to have Brogdon, and you're going to have at times TJ Leaf guarding Joel Embiid, and Embiid's going to have 41 and 21. You're going to get out rebounded by 20. You're going to go, all right, let's <laughs> let's see what they let's see what they've got for Phoenix, or you know, or let's see what they've got uh, in, in game number two for Washington. And yet they won that game, and not just won it, but won such a key game with a team tied in the standings. And really, now I, I do want to point out too, the Pacers were terrific in the turnover margin, which which was a big factor also. Uh, and that's something I think they're going to have to do well because they're probably going to struggle to rebound a little bit without Sabonis there. So they have to be able to get in transition and win the turnover margin. But pretty much all of those problems that I just named can be solved with T.J. Warren's 53-point performance. I mean, in terms of a single play, and this is what is so unique because as as we have been here doing these current jobs, but even longer, um, you might have to go back to Jermaine O'Neal. But even then, you know, Jermaine O'Neal wasn't, uh, the type of player that put up these massive points and carried a team on his shoulder the whole time. He had good teammates around him. The story for the Pacers is they win because maybe they have a Victor Oladipo or a Paul George. That's their best player. But the second, third, fourth, fifth components are there. And almost always when they win, it's not because Oladipo has this massive, uh, massive heroic performance. It's because he has a really good night and then a couple of guys behind him have really good nights and the Pacers get it done as a team. And that was the first time I could remember. There have been others. You know, Paul George had a 48-point game. If I remember right, that might have been in a loss. Victor Oladipo had a 47-point performance in a dramatic comeback against Denver. Um, but it's just so rare that you see, um, you know, for lack of a better phrase, kind of the James Harden effect, where one guy for the Pacers single-handedly carries a team. And the Pacers had to have that in that opener against Philadelphia because they were so shorthanded. They had Miles Turner, um, you know, in foul trouble, barely playing. They needed a, you know, Herculean effort. And it, it's just amazing to me to think, you know, you've had Victor Oladipo or Paul George here with Indiana for how many years in a row consecutively you've had one of those two guys. But the most points ever scored in a Pacers game now is uh, T.J. Warren in his 53 that he had on Saturday. And you, you're accurate in saying so many times in postgame shows over the years, I look down, and if the Pacers have six or seven in double figures, usually you think it's a win. But if they have one of those high-scoring you know, output performances, but only three in double figures, it's not usually recipe for success. I can go back and think probably many of Paul George's highest-scoring games, some of the most memorable, I mean, two that stand out to me, I believe one at Utah and one at Portland, the Pacers did not win. And so um, they did it. They knew what they had to do. Now, at that situation, I don't think anybody on the court in the Sixers game would be upset about not getting enough shots. You know, Victor Oladipo is still on a little bit of a minutes restriction. And so that can be an issue when you're at full health 
if one player takes all the shots, eventually guys start to get, you know, a little aggravated and say, well, what about mine? Well, when, when Vic's not 100% and Miles is in foul trouble, um, there's enough shots to let T.J. Warren have them. But at the same time, that's the other thing I think people should recognize. If you're not getting the freebies from the free throw line and you're not forcing it, I mean, to get these numbers that he's getting, and it's not by virtue of James Harden, you know, chucking it up, you know, 30 times or going to the free throw line 20 times. I mean, it's just, it's old school a little bit, but he is just. And I, if prior to Saturday, if I had to ask you, you know, what was the most memorable win of the season? Um, I mean, I might say maybe that Toronto game before Christmas, or I might even say recency bias would say that Dallas win at the end of the road trip was really impressive. But um, I think five years from now, there's only one choice for the regular season. It, it's going to be that Sixers game. And that's what made it so cool is they could have probably lost by 20, and I probably would have driven home with a smile on my face. Um, maybe not really, but just the fact that I got to work again, we got to see the Pacers play. And with the injuries, I don't even think I would have been that upset if they had lost because not to say you expected it, but you wouldn't have been surprised if Philadelphia, the team getting all of the accolades before the bubble – um, you know, came in and kind of took care of business. But it's just been a really fun opening week. You you expected the win against Washington. I think Orlando, a little bit of a toss-up because they had maybe a little bit more to play for. I do think the Magic um, felt some of the effects of that Jonathan Isaac injury. That's kind of one of those gut-punch kind of things that mm-hmm. not only affects them here but into the future. And, and you can even go back to some of the devastating injuries the Pacers have suffered. The first game after that is really difficult. So we maybe didn't touch on that as much during the broadcast as we tried to figure out what was going wrong with Orlando. But when you are kind of feeling a little bit of a hangover from that, and then the Pacers get off to a start that they did, which, you know, probably the best offensive fourth quarter and first quarter, you know, the Sixers game and then the first quarter against Orlando, it's, it's been phenomenal to see this offense really thriving. And maybe I'll get right into this with you, Pat. Sabonis, you want him back as soon as possible, but, with him not there, the style has changed. And so don't misinterpret anything I am saying. Um, if, if you can get Sabonis back tomorrow, I will take him. But just the substitution patterns, if and when he returns, you have to like what they have as another option by throwing Aaron Holiday out there and having Oladipo and Brogdon and maybe even just to another extent having T.J. Warren play more of a four than a three. You absolutely have to love how well the Pacers are, have pivoted and adjusted. And I, and I think that's maybe been the biggest storyline of the season. Um, you know, I had a tweet out a couple of days ago when you just look at the fact that Victor Oladipo's missed, uh, you know, off the top of my head, 53 games. Malcolm Brogdon has missed 18. Jeremy Lamb has missed, I think, 16 and counting. Turner's missed 10. Sabonis is out for the restart. I mean, that's enough to sink most teams. And not only did that not sink the Pacers, but as we're talking – you know, they're uh, 42 and 26. That's on pace for 51 wins if you were to play 82. It's, it's just been remarkable. I think that storyline has been um, maybe buried a little bit too much, even from a Pacers fan point perspective. Look, I know everyone wants, you know, competing for championships. And, and you know, so far the Pacers have shown, um, you know, that, that maybe they're going to be that surprise team that Chad Buchanan has talked about. Maybe they can be that surprise team that puts a scare into some of these top contenders. But when you think about the fact that the Pacers are on pace to win over 50 games despite all of that, it's just remarkable. 
you're right in, in what you say. If you can get DeMontis Sabonis back tomorrow, you take it. Mark Boyle and I were having this conversation. You know, what has to happen for the Pacers to feel like this was a successful restart? Now, if they lose in the first round of the playoffs, I don't necessarily think you say the restart was a failure by any means. Um, but for you to ultimately deem this successful, you probably say you got to win a playoff series. And DeMontis Sabonis absolutely gives you that best chance. And a quick step to throw in with that that proves that. Uh, since Sabonis has been on the Pacers, I'm not counting the restart. This is a stat I had before the restart. Uh, but when DeMontis Sabonis has been on the Pacers for the last three years, Indiana's winning 60% of the time in games he plays, 50% of the time in games he doesn't. So they go from a good playoff team when he's on the floor um, to a 500 team when he isn't. He's been that important to the Pacers. Yet their ability to pivot, their ability on the fly to – you know, they went from in the regular season to being, you know, we're going to kind of buck the trend here. We're going to go big when everybody else goes small. Um, we're going to try to have two bigs on the floor, make you guard miles on the perimeter on one end, Sabonis down low on the other. And then we're going to flip them on the other side. Um, you went from trying to throw wrinkles in what everybody's normal game plan is for an NBA game to all of a sudden, OK, now you're back to playing small ball and now you're back to trying to spread the floor and hit the three and, and do all the things that the small ball lineup gives you. And to do that so seamlessly um, is such a credit to Nate McMillan and the coaching staff, because, I mean, this is, they have completely changed the identity of the team in a lot of ways. It's still the same, you know, core guys, but in a lot of ways, they've completely changed the identity of what they want to do. And they've done it so quickly in such adverse circumstances, um, you and I have been hammering really the Nate McMillan point home for, I think, three seasons now. And he's finished in the top five in coach of the year. You look at that first year with Oladipo and what they did, taking the Cavs to seven, winning 48 games without having Oladipo for a majority of the season. They're now on pace to win over 50 again without Oladipo for the majority of the season and even more obstacles this year than maybe those past two combined. Um, it, the, the, I just can't say enough about the job that not only Nate, but the coaching staff has done, because I don't think, you know, it totally is understood just the dramatic um, <clears throat> adjustment that this has have, had to be without Sabonis. You and I have talked about this so many times on this podcast. DeMontis Sabonis is one of, if not the most consistent players in the NBA. He comes onto the floor almost every single night and you look down and there's 18 and 12. And then if he has a good night, it's like 24 and 15. And if he has a bad night, it's like 15 and 9. I mean, it's remarkable. And to take that consistency out of your lineup, again, I know it's only been three games. Um, they're not even halfway done with the restart regular season games before you even start the playoffs. So this, is, this doesn't mean that they've necessarily arrived or anything. But when you consider everything they've overcome to be one of just two teams out of the 22 that have started 3-0 and in the restart in Orlando. It's a remarkable testament that you know starts with the coaching staff, um, but certainly the players as well. Aaron Holiday, who you were touching on, his ability to adjust. I mean, so many guys are playing different positions and in different roles than they were at the start of the season. In fact, I would argue nobody is playing the same role than they were at the start of the season because with Oladipo in there, Malcolm Brogdon's role is different too. Um, it's, it's just a testament, I think, to the professionalism this team has. I think it really bodes well for the Pacers' chances the rest of the way. And as tough as the last four and a half months have been, I kind of have a sneaky hope here that all of the other aspects that get thrown into this restart, that the Pacers will deal with it and are dealing with it better than most teams. And that could really um, give them an advantage once the games really start to get important, once we get down to the final couple games of the regular season and into the playoffs.
Pat, I was asked a number of times in April and May and June on radio interviews, you know, what I thought we would see from a chemistry perspective. Could it carry over? What kind of teams would have success in Orlando? And my only way, I had no way to know, but my only thought was if you had good chemistry before, it would seem like you have a really good chance that you like your teammates and you like being around, you know, that group of people that when sequestered for three weeks, you're going to have a better chance to succeed. And for all the love that, you know, I sometimes I can be a little bit of a go the other direction from the, the group. But, I mean, I got a little tired of all this love for Philadelphia. I think that their chemistry and their problems that were well documented would just magically be fixed because they were down in Orlando and maybe they added a, a point guard that hadn't been playing point guard. It, if they have chemistry issues, I mean, then you're going to probably still have them. In fact, I would argue that the, the magnifying glass is even bigger and you're going to have more. Now, it's early. I'm not going to say, you know, who knows? Philadelphia could write the ship. But the, the, the general picture and point of context would be McMillan and the staff deserve a lot of credit, but then I'm going to take it another direction as well, the front office. It, it's one of those jobs that your mistakes are magnified and your, your hits sometimes don't get the credit they deserve. I think that, you know, Kevin Pritchard's hits have been getting a lot of credit and deservedly so, especially when you consider what he's able to do. But really, every offseason move has contributed to what this team is right now. And I'm going to go even down to, you know, probably the 15th signing, which was Jakar Sampson. Where yeah. are they right now without Jakar Sampson? What about TJ McConnell? Available for most teams to, to take a flyer on? I'm sure Philadelphia wouldn't mind if had McConnell back right about now. And then Justin Holiday. I mean, you could just go up and down. And that's not even mentioning how Malcolm Brogdon has kind of been a, a transformational player in terms of just leading this franchise despite his injuries. You, you're comfortable moving forward, I think, for the next you know, four years is Malcolm Brogdon is your point guard. So I think it was an off season that didn't get a lot of headlines. I think they probably got more credit in, in the off season analysis features than the off season before when, you know, let's be honest, it probably didn't, wasn't that great. You know, everybody loved the Tyreek Evans signing and that didn't work out. No one really said a whole lot. I think, I think the Brogdon move people were, were praising in the off season, but nobody even blinked or even, I don't even think it made the bottom line. Um, on the ticker on a slow news day that the Pacers signed Justin Holiday or T.J. McConnell or Jakar Sampson. But all four of those, all of those guys have done a really good job. And I think one thing that we've heard from Chad Buchanan and Kevin Pritchard is they don't want to have a lot of change in the next season. And a lot of contracts will carry over, but they like what they have. Maybe you have one or two additions. Who knows what ends up happening? But you want to continue what you have and build on it. And so this is a continuation of the regular season, but in reality, it kind of can help jumpstart into next season as well, not to look past what could happen. No, it absolutely can. And in fact, um, you know, we were having this conversation, I think, with Chad a few weeks ago. He made the comment that, you know, hope, I asked him about your offseason is now totally changed. Um, as a front office person like Chad is, as the general manager, you constantly have to be thinking about, uh, the next year, the next offseason, free agency draft, the trade period, all of that. And, you know, I asked, I said, hey, you're in the bubble and you're, um, you know, trying to figure out how to win right now. But you've got a completely changed timeline 
and you were in a very unique environment. How are you preparing for it? And, he, and if you haven't heard that, you know, Chad gave a lot of analysis in that regard, which was great. Uh, but, you know, kind of the bottom line thing I took from him was that, fortunately, we've done a lot of that work the past couple of off seasons. So this off season, we wouldn't have to do a lot of that. And of course, you never know a pandemic's coming into place, which, you know, maybe is um, perfect timing as it relates to if there was going to be a, an off season that was turned upside down. <laughs> For the Pacers, you don't have a first-round pick because you used it to acquire Malcolm Brogdon. You've got your core signed up long-term. This is probably going to be one of the more quieter off-seasons in recent Pacers memory, and for good reason, because you love the core that you have. And I just want to you know, kind of go back quickly and touch on a couple of those points you just made. From um, you know, a front office perspective, it's kind of twofold. It's first of all, can you bring in major game-changing starters? Um, and Malcolm Brogdon has been a major game-changing starter. In fact, I contend that if he didn't get hurt as much as he did, that he's an all-star. Uh, and, and, you know, perhaps if the Pacers only get one, I think for a lot of the year he was making the case to be the Pacers one, and Sabonis closed so strong and Brogdon got hurt and it ended up being Sabonis, and he absolutely deserved it. But I think Brogdon was playing on that level too. He just dealt with injuries. And he's somebody that you hopefully – you know, have locked up here for the long term, but it's also then how do you fill out the rest of, of your rotation? And, and how often do we see the teams with better benches, you know, in the playoffs where all of a sudden you'll have a random guy in a random series go off for a huge night and that can make a difference in the series. And all those names you just mentioned, Justin Holiday to McConnell to Sampson down the line, all of those have been hit, hit, hit. And especially, um, you know, when you consider where the team was from a depth perspective, even as recently as a couple of years ago, you know, Samson in there kind of taking Kylo Quinn's role, that's been an upgrade. We were talking on the radio, you know, how much of a hit and how important has Jakar Sampson been this year when you never would have guessed that that would be the case uh, in the offseason. And you chronicled TJ McConnell so well. I think he's been so pivotal and obviously was a major role last night. In fact, I would make the case that Indiana got off to that huge start. But look, a, a nice start is, is is just that in the NBA. It's a nice start. It was really that second unit that came in and kept the pressure on and turned what was, you know, something like 15 to 4 into 30 to 10. And that was a completely different story. And, and it was McConnell doing all of those things. And McConnell, who was beating guys and getting to the rim and, and you know, hitting that patented kind of fadeaway floater from about eight feet – he was so strong in game number three, and um, you know it really just kind of backs up the point of if if they can get this team healthy, just how much depth they really do have. Because even when they're not healthy, they've got a lot of depth, and uh, and it's been paying off in this restart so far. So we're three games in here, um, five to go in the in the restart, and then the playoffs obviously will come. The Pacers are kind of in a unique position because they're in fifth, but they're close enough where they could certainly get to fourth, especially considering they play Miami a couple more times. Although, it, well, first of all, I think, I think it's important that you get the fourth because if anything, it potentially keeps sixth further away. And, and I like where the Pacers could be in that 4-5 series if they can lock it down. But the reality is, I'm not sure, in a normal environment, the difference between four and five is massive. In this environment, it's not that big. It's You play each other either way and there's not really a major home court advantage. But the Pacers, with five games to go, I think are in one of the more interesting situations of any team in the NBA just to watch how they finish because they could very easily get to four 
Philadelphia is a game behind them without tiebreak, but still five games remaining. And if you look at Philadelphia's schedule, it is easier in those final four. The Pacers have a pretty tough final four games. They've been taking advantage of these first four, which I think was so key to do so. Uh, but I'm wondering when you look here at this, at where the Pacers stand with five games to go and, and what the rest of the NBA has done and where the rest of the NBA stands and certainly the Eastern Conference, uh, what's your outlook here for the final handful of games? Well, I don't think you could uh, – you can't ask for a better start. And I even think uh, when you saw the schedule and you saw the games against Washington, Orlando, Phoenix, you can't automatically chalk those up as wins. But you thought if you could get to three and one through four – you would be in a good spot to be able to maintain five. Now you got the first one and a chance to go 4-0, and then a lot of the last four will be dependent upon what those teams decide to do. I've been impressed. We have not seen too many situations, um, maybe just you could count on one hand, where a team backed off for rest purposes. And that's good because, to me, they had three months to rest, and you probably need to start fine-tuning things. A little bit. Maybe Brooklyn didn't quite play Giannis as much as they needed to to be. Um, to be Brooklyn and that contributed, but he still played. And so we'll see what happens on those four games. What do the Lakers have to play for Saturday? What is Miami's perspective of, of showing the Pacers? What does Indiana want to show Miami if they're potential playoff opponents? It's really important, though, to me to get that Phoenix game and maybe even before Saturday see Philly lose another game and create a little breathing room. This is what I would say to your question about four or five. If you can be in the four or five game and basically finish the season ahead of Philadelphia, the team many thought would win the East at the beginning of the season, you'll consider this an accomplishment. I just want them to go into the playoffs kind of still feeling good about themselves, not questioning each other. The main thing is to start the playoffs healthy. So I think that's the one thing that you can't really control but you can a little bit. Like, I, I don't necessarily want to see T.J. Warren playing 40 minutes every night. So it's something um, you want to win games, you want to play well, you don't want to, you know, keep hold anyone down, but you don't want heavy minutes when you're playing every other day. So that's something I'm going to be keeping an eye on. But as long as you're ahead of Philadelphia and, and you win at least half of the remaining games, I think you can go into the postseason feeling good about yourselves. And then you have the DeMontis Savonis variable. One thing I wanted to go back and ask you about, it's a little bit of an inside baseball type of discussion, but I think we should have it quickly. I've been impressed and proud of everyone with Fox Sports Indiana and what we've been able to do from a television perspective. I hope the fans have enjoyed. It hasn't been a perfect broadcast from start to finish, and it probably won't be given some of the uh, constraints, but from a radio perspective, how do you think things have been going on that side of the, of the network? You know, it's it's been amazing um, because there are so many ways, and, and I'll knock on wood here, because, <laughs> because there still are so many ways that things could go wrong. Uh, I, and, and what I mean by that is just there are so many different technological setups and aspects of this that we just normally don't have to do. On top of the fact that, and this the, this variable on TV is like times 20 compared to radio, but it still exists for radio. On top of the fact that you have so many remarkable moving parts in a TV and, and to a lesser degree radio broadcast in a normal environment anyway, that you need really talented people in talented positions both on air and on the production side, director, producer, um, and, and graphics and down the line. There are so many ways that you know this could go off the rails because 
this is so new and we're bringing in feeds from a different location and then we're getting them out in different ways. And I, I have just been thrilled. Um, you know, we, we're going to need to keep that high level up. But my hope was that you'd watch the game and you'd listen to the game and maybe occasionally you'd go, oh, that's a little different than normal. A good example, the Zoom calls after the game are not our normal press conferences. Um, you know, maybe you can tell from time to time that we're in a radio, you know, we're in a studio calling a game off a monitor, and it's a lot harder, especially on the radio side, when you're trying to give a lot more description in a play-by-play call than you would on the TV side. That it's a little harder to get that high-level play-by-play that Mark Boyle normally can. But I've just been, whether it's been, you know, watching the television broadcast back, getting to be a part of the post-game show, obviously my role with radio. I hope it's rung true on on the fever side as well. I've just been so impressed. And so much of this goes to people that are, you know, way over my head and doing things at a way higher level than I could even pretend to. I've just been so impressed in general with how um, this restart has happened from a broadcast perspective, because I really, truly think that while you maybe can notice a tiny difference here, a tiny difference there, my hope was that you'd go and you'd watch and you'd listen and it would feel pretty close to normal. And I think we have done that. Hat tip to you, Chris, Quinn, Jeremiah, uh, um, you, um, Jamie, Ken, uh, Jason, who's the, you know, the new producer for the moment. And there are so many people on that TV side, we would take a whole podcast just listing off all of the names. Um, but then, you know, like Greg Smith back um, in engineering, that's helped get everything set up on the radio side for Mark and Eddie and Scott Fenstermaker and me. This has been just a remarkable um, setup and a remarkable undertaking. And so far, so good. I, I think you feel the same way. So far, so good. It's, it's been fun to get back there, but ultimately really impressive to watch all of this get pulled off in such a different manner at, in my opinion, such a high level. And then you throw in the fact that we are still in a pandemic and you have to socially distance <laughs> while you are trying to remotely broadcast. And that's the other variable that probably 80% of the people don't even really understand is we're in a building under construction. <laughs> so I wish they could, I wish they could see us. I mean, it is, it is hilarious sometimes <laughs> and it's going to be a beautiful construction, but like we're wearing, we're wearing uh, lime vests <laughs> and hard hats and masks and trying to stay six feet away. I mean, if, if it would make a great like sitcom, I feel like. Yeah. Or maybe even just a, a Netflix documentary, not not eight parts, but maybe like two. You know, we could do yeah. a before and after. And yeah, I mean, at some point you just think like, I, the last week, let's just, when you consider the nervous anticipation of just would this work, then the actual execution of, as you said, walking in with a hard hat and a vest and then going upstairs. And, and praying that my phone will work for my first Zoom one-on-one interview with Nate McMillan. That was, you know, three minutes <laughs> of the pregame show. And then to see T.J. Warren pop for 53 and then turn my uh, hard hat and vest back on and um, help the uh, the crew put the um, the cover on the box loft and the cover is drenched in dust. That, that's recent dust, right? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you just – you can't even describe it all, but uh, – I, you said, you know, Jamie Burns and Greg Smith, and I wanted to even throw in Emily Wright, who's helping in engineering and has been a great addition. Like a lot of the behind the scenes people, because we didn't really know a week before it, people would ask me, Hey, are you going to the Orlando bubble? And, you know, I, I was, I said, I wasn't doing that. 
but there was a chance that I was going to be in a St. Louis bubble <laughs> right? <laughs> because we didn't know if all of this was going to work. And I think, you know, not speaking out of turn here, but one of the options was to go to St. Louis for the month of August and to broadcast from our Midwest studios. And we were able to make Bankers Eye Fieldhouse a studio. And um, yeah, I wanted to be able to mention that and at least share a little bit of the behind the scenes. So when you're watching, if something goes wrong, don't be too upset. But well, knock on wood, as you did, not not too much has gone wrong. So I uh, also wanted to real quickly, and I know we want we need to wrap this up. You're very busy. This will be not only from a, you know, what's it been like broadcasting remotely, but when you go back, I've, I've used this phrase probably five times already over the last week, and I did it maybe two or three times after the game on Saturday. We'll remember that night forever. We'll remember this experience forever. But your August, from a broadcast perspective, is, is truly epic. And uh, you've got a fever game tonight. Uh, a 10 o'clock tip from Orlando or from Bradenton. You don't see those every day. But uh, good luck with that. And then you're early on in your marathon of, is it 15 straight days? Yeah, well, so ESPN ended up taking one game in there. So it's, it's, 11, uh, it's 11 straight days with a game. We're on day uh, 6 of 11. Five of, no, 6 of 11. So right in the middle of that. And then ESPN will take a game and then we'll do like four more straight. So it's something like 15 and 16 and 11 straight. Um, and yeah, and, and it's, it's just been remarkable, you know, to kind of close on the point we have been making because of all the extenuating circumstances between the pandemic and the construction. And really, you know, like that's the one area in the whole building right now that they've been able to keep together to do these broadcasts. Um, you know, on the Fever side, <clears throat> I, we are streaming on feverbasketball.com for 17 to 22. All you have to do is go there or on the Facebook page or on the app, and you can watch a free live stream. The Fever have started their season two and two, um, and, and I think are on, in general, the, a really promising trajectory and an upswing. And so, you, you know what? It's a 10 o'clock game tonight, and, and that, this might sound crazy to say because I'm not sure I've ever said this. But thank goodness, because I am so happy to have this, you know, more of a day to get ready for this because I wanted to get this podcast in. Um, you know, we're doing other things to prepare for Pacers Weekly. I've got a couple interviews, you know, I'm helping lock down for Pacers Weekly on Saturday. And I'm just so glad that I've got a full day, you know, and not a four o'clock tip to get ready for tonight's game. It's been a marathon, but I couldn't be happy. The way I've been saying it is it's absolutely crazy, you know, to be going at this pace right now with both leagues running, but I couldn't be happier after the last four months for things to be crazy. And, you know, kind of final thoughts from me, who knows how this season's going to finish? Who knows how this regular season's going to finish? Who knows where the paces are going to finish up in the playoffs? Same group for fever, you know, I hope we've got multiple podcasts down the line where we are as enthusiastic and optimistic and and all of the, uh, you know, positive adjectives that we can describe in this podcast. But I do know, you know, you and I have been have been waiting. The world has been waiting for four and a half months and there has been so much unease and so much uncertainty. And and unfortunately, this pandemic has wreaked so much havoc and it's been such a hard and trying time. But to get back to basketball to get back to our jobs and to get back to broadcasting and to get back to being able to tell the stories and, and allow people to watch and to listen to the game, to do all of that in a, in a pandemic and in a construction zone and to have, you know, these broadcasts pull off in the way that they are, to have the product on the court, to have the excitement of TJ Warren's storyline. I mean, there were some uneasiness and, and some, 
some you know nervous moments in in March and April and May, and there are so many things about this that are so much bigger than sports. You know, the um, ra- the move for the social justice and racial equality and all of that are, are so far above what I'm talking about. Uh, but just on some scale, it has been so fulfilling to be able to pull off this restart so far. All of the different variables have come together for what I think in general have been great broadcasts on the radio, the TV, and the fever side. Um, you know, so many technical aspects that have been put together. It's been a remarkable undertaking. And then to have the team give us this storyline, it is the absolute bow on top of this present uh, to start 3-0 and in the bubble, to have T.J. Warren putting up. We named a lot of statistics, but we can't end the podcast with talking about the fact that he tied Jermaine O'Neal for the most points over a three-game span in Pacers NBA franchise history. I mean, you almost can't write this script. And we don't know what's going to happen. You know, we don't know how the season's going to end and the playoffs are going to go. But I think it's important especially as we are so busy and you chronicled some of that. I think it's important to um, for for everyone. And, and certainly we are fortunate to be able to do this, to take in this moment and realize how positive this last week plus has gone and to be able to just for a moment relish in it because there has been so much unknown and, and to be able to be back to doing all of this and to be doing it at the level that we've been fortunate to do it and with the team doing what they're doing. Um, I think I'm going to be looking back at this, hopefully one day looking back at a long career, and some of this is going to stick out as, as some of the highlights in you know the, the lightness that fortunately we've been able to have in all of this darkness of the last four and a half months. And I couldn't be more thankful to be a part of it. I know you agree with those um, sentiments, and it's just it's really good to be back. It feels so good to be back. A couple of quick final thoughts. This is a very positive podcast, as I expected it would be. But I did want to, you know, be sure to make sure that everyone understands that we are real and and we understand people are hurting right now. You know, and the last week was a sad time for for many uh, of people that are close with us in the organization. And, um, you know, some business decisions have had to be made, not just with the Pacers, but really around the world. And we continue to see that the effects of, of the pandemic from a health perspective and from, you know, a job perspective. And, and I kind of wrestled with having the proper tone on Saturday when I came on the air, because uh, there are so many people that are still hurting right now. Many have lost loved ones. And, and, and then also many are still feeling the pain from the racial um, inequalities. And so it, it, it's been almost impossible to, portray the emotions that are appropriate other than to just acknowledge people are hurting. This is a really rough time for many, but you also need to, from a mental health perspective, find some joy at some point in the day. And we hope the Pacers have been able to do that while acknowledging it's, it's probably, it's not the most important thing going on in anyone's life. It's entertainment. And one thing that is um, more positive to finish it seems knock on wood pretty safe in Orlando. And so the NBA has gone to great lengths to make this happen. And so far, so good. Uh, we hope it continues that way. So we're proud of proud, I think, to be a part of the process and the, the league and, and the Pacers organization. And so we, we uh, feel for those who are struggling right now and we'll continue to do what we can and, and be thankful for the opportunities that we have. I think that's perfectly summed up. I think it's a perfect way to end this podcast. Uh, so, JJ, I hope we're talking about, you know, great things on the court the next couple of, of weeks as we do this as well. But 
hey, it's been enjoyable uh, to get back to basketball and to get back to doing our jobs. And uh, you're right. You know, it's, it's been a positive, um, you know, part of entertainment and a positive uh, point in what's been a really difficult and challenging last five months. And I know uh, we're both very thankful to get to be a part of it. So always good to talk with you. Um, you're extremely busy during this time, too. So we'll let you get back to work. And um, best of luck on the broadcast coming up on Thursday and the rest of these before we hit the playoffs and things start to get uh, a lot more intense. Well, Pat, good luck getting this posted. I know you have to do the dirty work <laughs> to make sure that this gets online. So I think the fans will appreciate it. And if you're listening before uh, 10 p.m. Wednesday night, tune in. Fever sparks tonight. Yep. Get a cup of coffee, a Red Bull, your beverage of choice, whatever it is that keeps you up uh, late at night. We would love to have you along for the ride. FeverBasketball.com, the Facebook page, the app. Uh, our digital crew has done a terrific job making that accessible to you. That'll wrap it up for this week's Sideline Guys podcast. For JJ, I'm Pat. We'll talk to you next Wednesday.